First Corinthians 1, we're going to continue our study on the gospel. And as we begin, I want to ask a question. And that question is, can you locate the offense of the gospel? Why do people have an issue with the gospel? Why is it offensive? Said another way, do people have an issue with the good news or with the bad news? You've heard it said that you've got to give someone the bad news before you give them the good news so that the good news will be good news, right? You understand what I mean? I talk about bad news and good news because people need to come face to face with their sin if they're going to appreciate the Savior who saves them from sin. Is the offense in the bad news or the good news? It's a rhetorical question. But all that to say, according to what we've learned, it's in the good news. Because the good news is Christ's death and resurrection, Christ crucified. It is the cross that is the offense of the gospel. It's the cross that's the offense of the gospel. Now, in our study of this, I've been trying to do my best to squeeze out every drop of biblical truth that we can discern from the text of Scripture we've got to. And it's been very tedious and time-consuming. And last week I went away and I thought to myself, I was in over my head. And I thought, I just don't know that that one was cooked. I felt like it was a bit undercooked. And to be honest, that's one of the difficulties of preaching, especially when you preach a topic, because you realize at times that the recipe for faithful preaching sometimes requires more time to prepare than a given day or a week or a month. And that's one reason why we've been going through this study very slowly, because I want to be able to have the time to prepare spiritual meals on the topic of the gospel. So that's kind of giving us a little bit of... uh, Some background. Now I want to go into today's message, which we're going to find in 1 Corinthians, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Father, as we look into your word, we pray that you will encourage our hearts with what we are about to discover tonight. And with what we will learn of you tonight. And uh, Lord, strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. The question before us in our study of the gospel is, how do you see the gospel? What do you think when you think of Christ crucified? As we look at 1 Corinthians 1.18, it teaches us generally that we can see it in one of two ways. Either it's foolishness. Or it's powerful. Last week we went over chapter or chapter one verse twenty three, which gets a bit more specific, and we dealt with half or we dealt with the verse when it talks about those who reject the gospel. Those who reject the gospel see it as either an offense, Christ crucified, it's a stumbling block to the Jews, or they see it as foolishness, foolishness to the Gentiles. Their reaction to the gospel matches their expectations in life. For the Jews, they wanted signs. For the Gentiles, they sought wisdom. And their response to the gospel was in accord with their expectations for life. Now, 
The other way to see the gospel in general is to see it as the power of God. That's what we see in verse 18. The word of the cross is, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. More specifically, this is what Lenski says, what the called find Christ to be matches in a way what the foolish Jews and Greeks require and seek. I made reference to this last week, but there's a correlation between what we see and what the Jews and the Gentiles see. Notice it says here in verse 24, this is the detail. The, so the, the general response to, the, to the Christ crucified for the believing is it's the power of God. That more specifically is in verse 4. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is a more detailed explanation of what we see. So Christ crucified displays the wisdom and power of God. That's the point of the text. And to the redeemed, to us, Christ crucified displays his power and wisdom. We believe that so. We who are saved. We who are the elect of God. That is our subjective understanding. Now, for the sake of being clear, I want to raise a distinction as we study these two verses, 118 and 124. Because the text teaches us that the gospel is the power of God. Yet, they don't equal one another. This is what I mean. Everything that is the gospel is not God's power. And everything that is God's power is not the gospel. They are different from each other. I have a book on my shelf that's entitled, God is the Gospel. Now, I understand the author's point, but there is a difference between the sovereign creator God and the good news of Jesus Christ. Those are not the exact same thing. And we need to discern how is it that the gospel is the power of God. They're not exactly the same, but how is it that the gospel is the power of God? I think we can understand it this way. The gospel displays the power of God. It displays the power of God. There are many displays of God's power. Creation, the exodus, the conquest, the judgments to come, as we've been studying the book of Revelation and will for many (laughs) months to come. And as we look at these things, we see God is so powerful And even as we look more specifically at something like God's provision for Israel in the wilderness, God gave them day in, day out manna. And he did so for 40 years. He provided for them. And as soon as they got into the promised land and ate the fruits of the promised land, the manna ceased. It's just amazing. Now, you know from John 6 that after Jesus fed the 5,000, the Jews demanded a sign. They, they, they demanded a miraculous demonstration of power. It was kind of their history that they had seen so many of these things, and they want another one. And, of course, Jesus promised them a sign. It's not the one they asked for, but he did promise them a sign. He said, you destroy this temple, you destroy me, and I'll raise it up in three days. He promised them the sign of Jonah that the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in, in, in Sheol. He promised them a sign. And when we ask for a sign, that would be to manifest his power. And he points to, Jesus points to the events that Paul is going to call the gospel as a manifestation of his power. Jesus would say, you want to see power? Look at my death and resurrection. That's power. Now consider how the gospel displays the power of God. How does the gospel display the power of God? 
resurrection. That's obviously a display of God's power because Jesus discussed that with the Sadducees. The Sadducees came to Jesus trying to stump him with a question about a widow and her marrying again and again and again. And he told them, you don't understand the power of God, which specifically relates to they don't believe that God can raise someone from the dead. He has the power to do so. So Jesus connects the power of God to the resurrection. And Paul does in 1 Corinthians. So turn a page or two forward to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14. This is what Paul says. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And grammatically, his power is what affects both of those. By his power, God raised the Lord, raised Jesus, and by his power, he will raise us up. So God's power is displayed in the quickening of the dead, in reversing death, in bringing life. And that comes up again and again. 2 Corinthians 13.4 For he, Christ, was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Resurrection demonstrates God's power. Ephesians 1.18-20 This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. We pray that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly paces. The power was demonstrated in Christ's resurrection. Hebrews 5.7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. God, able there, that's the word for power, God had the power to save him from death. He is able to rescue Jesus, and by doing so, he shows power. So see that power? This is one. You say, well, why, why do we need to see this power? Why is it so important for you and me to see the power of God? Because one day we expect to die. We'd rather not. And we find the demonstration of God's power in raising Jesus from the dead to be something that gives us hope. And that's the point. First, back to where we were, the page before, 1 Corinthians 2, faith, 2, 5, it says this, Your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but your faith would rest in the power of God. As we see his power displayed in raising Jesus from, from the dead, There's where our faith lies. It rests in the power of God. So you have to notice there's there's a connection between faith and God's power. If God weren't powerful, if he's not able, our faith really is, is useless. If God lacks ability, faith in that kind of God isn't going to do anything for us. But our faith is in the one who has all power, but it has been uniquely displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So... How do we find out about God's power in the gospel? The gospel displays God's power to raise the dead. But the gospel also displays God's power to save. This is a good cross-reference to write in the margin. It would be Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God. To do what? Unto salvation to everyone who believes. So it is through faith in the gospel God delivers sinners from death. He frees them from their sin. In the death of Christ, we're set free from sin's penalty since he took the penalty on himself. And because of that, we've been freed from sin's power. And one day, through Christ's future victory, 
as we're studying in the book of Revelation, we will be freed from sin's presence. So the power of God is demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ and in the salvation of sinners. Secondly, 124, to those who are called, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So Christ crucified displays the wisdom of God. As I was studying with my commentaries, I found them rather unhelpful on this point in many cases. I had the feeling that they did a search with the word wisdom and God and just printed the results. So one cited Daniel 2, which you remember since we studied this, that Daniel refers to the fact that wisdom comes from God. And I think that's true. But how does that relate and how is it relevant to 1 Corinthians 1.24? That Christ is the wisdom of God. Another cited Colossians 2.3, which says this, it, all, treasures, all the treasures of wisdom are in Christ. That's true, but how does that give me an understanding of 1 Corinthians 1.24? I just didn't find it helpful at all. So, if we can't go with those, let's try the context. Context is a good thing to study. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where is the one who is wise? Talking about the philosopher, the person with the worldview, who gets life. Where is the scribe, the biblical expert? Where is the debater, the order of, of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, there's a key, key phrase we should pay attention to. Listen, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, through their own wisdom. They didn't come to know God. It pleased God. In the wisdom of God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So all of man's wisdom failed because it didn't bring man into a saving knowledge of God. Of course, all man knows God, that God is, that he exists, and all mankind believes in God. They may suppress that knowledge, but they all believe it. As Romans 1 teaches us. Yet, Man, in all of his wisdom, has not figured out how to enter into fellowship with God. Okay? Now we go to chapter 2, verse 7. We have another reference to the wisdom of God. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God created before the ages for our glory. Cross-reference to that would be Romans 16, 25, and we're, we're kind of getting a flavor of where, where is this resting? What is the field of information we're dealing with? Uh, Romans 16, 25, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Okay, similar topic. And the preaching of Jesus Christ, similar topic. According to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages. There's that backward motion. Something happened years ago that is being revealed, that is revealing the wisdom of God. You boil all those things down and it seems to be this. It seems that God's wisdom is displayed by this. Through the cross, God solved man's primary issue. Through the cross, sinful man came to know God personally because the brightest and the smartest of man could never land a man in heaven with God. He can put a man on the moon, but he can't get man into heaven. Wisdom hasn't brought man into union with God. But the cross brings sinners into fellowship with God. 
and it shows that God cracked the code, that man couldn't. Christ crucified was God's plan ages ago, under the ages. And by God's wisdom in the cross, we have secured righteousness and holiness and redemption, verse 30 says. So as we look at the Christ crucified, we see power. We see wisdom. From our point of view as the saved, the believing, the called, Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But is that just our imagination, our point of view? Is it an actual reality? Well, in reality, Christ crucified does display God's power and wisdom. It's actually the truth. It's not just our perception. It's the truth. We know that from the next verse. Christ crucified is the power of God. Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. Verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So now now is not a perspective, as verse 24 says, to us. This is a truth that's being laid down. Man at his best is still less than God. If God could be at his worst, at God at his worst. It's not a contest. Just think for a moment. Compare a baby moving and a car moving. I mean, the fastest baby crawling isn't going to be faster than a car and drive. I mean, there's no contest between a car and a baby. And there's no contest between the wisdom and power of God and the wisdom and power of man. In the moment that the crucified is weak and an offense to the Jews, he is delivering sinners from sin. He's bringing them salvation. And in the moment that the crucified is foolish in that he is being put to death and overcome, he is making a pathway to God that no wise man conceived of. So in the cross, we learn something about God. He is powerful. He is wise. You see, to some, the cross is just a foolish display. But to others, the cross is a powerful display. Display of God's wisdom. So what's, what is it to you? How do you think about Christ crucified? As we talk about these things, do they resonate with you? Because if they do, you're not perishing. Because these things don't resonate with those who are perishing. They're resonating with us because we're saved, because we're believing, because we're the called of God, and that ought to encourage us. Not only has he taught us more about himself, God through the cross, but he assures us that we're not perishing because the whole way we look at the cross has changed. And that's just the grace of God. Father, we are thankful that you have done such a work in us, that we look at what Christ did in coming and dying and rising again with admiration and joy and thankfulness and amazement in awe, and we just are so thankful that what man was unable to do, you and your power and wisdom accomplished, and you made it so that we could have fellowship with our Creator, the one whom we were made to glorify, the one we haven't glorified, yet the one through Christ we can glorify and come into fellowship with, and we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.